Now this evening we want to turn again to this passage of scripture that we read earlier. Uh, some of you may remember back to, I think it was about February the 24th was the last time I was preaching here. And uh, we began to look at this subject uh, on that occasion, uh, thinking about the authentic Christian ministry that uh, God has given to the apostles. See, what had happened was men, the, the men had, whom Paul calls false apostles, had crept into these early churches and uh, they had crept into the church in Corinth and uh, they were confusing uh, the believers there. They were questioning the apostleship and the authority and the ministry of Paul and of his colleagues. He was defending him. And in doing so, he sets out the nature of what true Christian ministry is all about at the beginning of chapter 3. And then he proceeds through to the end of chapter 5 to point out some of the ways in which authentic Christian ministry rejoices in and exalts the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Christian gospel is much more than just a philosophy, a philosophy of life. It is that. It gives us a worldview, an explanation of things as they are and how they came to be and where they're going that's far more satisfying than uh, all the philosophies and speculations of men. But the gospel is much more than that. It's also a power to live by. It brings helpless lost sinners into touch with the power of the Spirit working within them with the Scripture, with the Word of God, in order to save and to transform them into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that's the picture that Paul gives us of the nature and goal of the Christian ministry. For the simple reason that that is the goal of the gospel. That the Christian ministry proclaims. Paul never separates the ministry from the gospel. They're both working toward the same goal, the same end, always. That is always the end in view. And that is the reason why we persevere in teaching it and preaching it and living it. The apostle now goes on to point out some of the persevering and enabling effects which follow from having been entrusted with such a ministry. And this is what he's doing in these verses that we're going to be looking at uh, this evening, verses 1 to 6. He speaks here of four effects which become evident in the exercise of such Bible-based and Spirit-led ministry. And the common denominator of these four effects is the enabling grace of God, or the persevering grace of God. The first of these is the fact that it's a ministry that is characterized by courage and constancy. That's what Paul is bringing before us in verse 1. See, the Apostle Paul faced many obstacles and difficulties and discouragements in his ministry. He actually tells us that he first went to Corinth in fear and trembling in chapter 2 of his first epistle in verse 3. And here in verses 8 to 10, we get a list of troubles that he endured. 
And later on in chapter 11, there's an even more detailed list of distresses that he had to endure in preaching the gospel. And not least was the opposition that he encountered from false brethren and false apostles who had crept into some of the churches. It would be very easy in those circumstances to lose heart, to become discouraged, to give up and to throw in the towel. The fear of man and the temptation to compromise can be all too real then. Or a spirit of weariness and defeatism can take over and turn us from the path of duty. But Paul's language is, we faint not. We do not lose heart. How many church members and how many Christian workers have failed at this very point? We cease to witness when rebuffed a couple of times. We stopped teaching that class because they were somewhat unruly. We cease to help and not ministry to the disadvantaged because they show so little gratitude. Sometimes we'll even move elsewhere because of the hardness and lack of response and we want to get away from. We should compare our lot and our attitudes with that of Paul and his colleagues. And we see what real discouragement is. And we see how it ought to be faced up to. And how it should be dealt with. What was it then that gave to these men the courage and determination to go on? What was it that enabled them to persevere in the face of all that they endured? It was the realization that they had received this ministry from God himself. But behind that was the motivation of the realization of God's mercy toward them. As Paul says here, therefore, since we have this ministry, through the mercy of God, we faint not. See, Paul never forgot the mercy of God towards him. How patient God had been with the proud Pharisee, even when he was hell-bent on destroying the church. How much he owed to the mercy of God that spared him then, and that convicted and confronted him in the road to Damascus, and brought him to the knowledge of Christ's lordship, and to take up that new commission that his Lord gave him. There's a lesson there for us. There's a beautiful illustration of it in the, the life of one of the leading ministers in the 18th century awakening in England, William Grimshaw. Some of his friends used to say to William Grimshaw to take things easier. And whenever they said that to him, he would always just stop and pause for a couple of minutes and muse and say more to himself than to them. Ah, he did so much for me. You see, it was in that spirit that he endured and achieved so much for Christ. He recognized how much Christ had done for him. And as believers, we need to ask ourselves and to stop and to reflect on this question. How much did he do for us?
And if you're an unbeliever, have you ever stopped to think that it's the very mercy of God that has spared you until now? And that that goodness is designed to lead you to repentance and faith in this same Jesus. See, that's the only thing that's going to give us the constancy and the courage to persevere and to go on even when the way becomes difficult. The second thing that Paul emphasizes here is not only the fact that it's a ministry that's characterized by courage and constancy, it's a ministry that is also characterized by clarity and openness. And you have that spelt out in verse 2. Now Paul is really making a contrast here with what he was talking about in the previous verse. He's saying that rather than faint and lose heart and give in, this is the way we have gone about our business. The temptation in the Christian ministry, you see, is not to abandon it altogether. There are comparatively few who do that. Rather, it's to continue in it. But to do so in such a way as to take the difficulties and the conflict out of it. In other words, to take the cross out of it. To do it in a way that's designed to please men. To get human praise rather than to please God and to be faithful to him and to the souls of men. You see, the Apostle Paul would have none of that. Just look at his behavior in this respect. There are two things that he tells us about his own ministry here in this verse. He tells us about the things that he renounces. On the one hand, that's the negative side of his ministry. And then he tells us about the things that he seeks to portray in his life as he ministers this gospel. Let's think about these for a moment. Look at the things he renounces, first of all. He tells us he refuses to hide what would cause him to be ashamed in the eyes of others. You know, we don't like to be found out whenever we have done something wrong, do we? We don't like our true behavior to be disclosed and made known. There's always that tendency in us to cover up and to conceal rather than be open and transparent in our doings and in our dealings. And Paul brings this up here. I think precisely because it's just the way Paul's opponents were behaving. These men were speaking about secret experiences that they had had which were beyond others. And they were using discreet underhand methods and all the time they were indulging in self-exaltation and even immoral behavior. Paul refused to practice such things. He refused to practice what was cunning and dishonest. He would not cover up the truth. He would not edit it in any way. He would not use means that smacked of underhandedness or unscrupulousness. See, the word translated cunning or craftiness here in this verse, it just means to be deceitful or to beguile. In the way that the serpent deceived Eve with his smooth talk and his half-truths in the Garden of Eden. Now, of course, we're all familiar with that kind of thing. In modern conversation and business communications and sadly also in many church activities, such behavior is just regarded as being wise and clever. 
People can feel they're clever, you know, whenever they pull the wool over someone else's eyes. Or when they get an advantage over another in this way. God just calls it lies and deceit and deceit. Furthermore, Paul refuses to distort and to twist the word of God. See, this is where it becomes really bad. That's always been like that. Way back in the Old Testament, Job replied to his false comforters, Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? You see, to be speaking and teaching contrary to God's word and yet claim to be speaking for God and in his behalf and with his authority is the very essence of evil. That's what makes entertaining false religions and false cults and false doctrines one of the most damning sins of all. All these Paul renounces. And all these we ought to renounce as well. But then look at the things he portrays. Having renounced what is corrupt and deceit and devious, he goes on to say that he and his colleagues then make it their business to be open and above board in their handling of the truth. They seek to display it for what it is, the truth. But they not only seek to do that with their words, they also want it to be displayed in their living. So that people see and hear how they do the truth. And consequently will have their, con their consciences stirred. They will have to admit that. If they don't even admit it to others. They will have to admit to themselves that what these men teach is true. You see Paul hid nothing. He watered nothing down. In order to gain the approval of men. Rather, he and his colleagues handled things openly and unashamedly and boldly, persevering. They sought in word and life to portray the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as it is in Christ. And this is to be as much our business in the world as it was the apostles. You see, we too are to represent Christ or to represent Christ and the truth of his gospel to our fellow men. That's the second thing that marks out Christian ministry this way. We need courage and constancy. We need its clarity and openness. And then the third thing that Paul mentions in verses 3 and 4 is that this is a ministry that's characterized by conflict and triumph. Because the gospel is set forth clearly and openly in the power of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't leave the apostle under the illusion that all men will surely believe it and receive it. You see, not all who hear the gospel come to know its power and its freedom and its light. Paul had already made that clear back in chapter 2, verse 16, where he taught that for some the gospel that they preached was the aroma of life unto life. But for others, he says, it was the aroma of death unto death. 
for the one it brings salvation through the knowledge of Christ. For the other, it seals in their souls the sentence of death and perdition that God has pronounced upon their sin. Now the explanation of that state of things is given here by the apostle. See, the problem with those who perish or who are lost is that they do not, or they will not, believe. Faith is the instrument or the handle by which we lay hold and offer of salvation in Christ. He who believes on the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son of God does not have life. Why then did they not believe? Well, it's because of the activity of the God of this world. Satan, the adversary, has blinded their minds, the apostle tells us. Satan's activity is designed to keep people in darkness so that the light of the gospel is kept out of their hearts and their understanding. Consequently, they see no beauty in Christ that they might desire him. Even though he is the express image of the Father's glory, and has come to reconcile sinners with himself. He has no attraction for them. They continue to live in their native darkness. And when they do hear the gospel, they react against it. And they seal their own lostness. You see, it's not because Satan is stronger than Jesus that things go that way for many. Not at all. It's simply because that is the way they like it. And that's the way they want it to be. As Jesus himself said, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. John 3.19 They will not come to the light for fear of being reproved for their doings. Consequently, Satan is able to keep them in his grasp and to keep their understanding darkened with the veil of unbelief firmly over their minds. It's only in turning to Christ that veils are taken away, as we were reminded in the last section. But in their blindness, men go their own way, which is essentially Satan's way, to their own destruction. And you see, all this reminds us that the Christian ministry is not merely a professional occupation like lecturing in a university or teaching in a polytechnic. It's getting involved in and persevering in spiritual warfare. There are malignant forces at work in our society and in the world, bent on keeping souls in darkness and death. And you can be perfectly sure that those malignant forces will be targeting those who are seeking to minister God's word and the message of Christ's gospel to needy ones. See, Jesus has shown himself stronger than Satan and sin. Our task, therefore, is to take to them the only truth that can unshackle and dispel the darkness, restoring them to fellowship with God. And to make them sharers in his glory. See, we are to take Christ's triumph to them. 
We're involved in a conflict. But it's a conflict in which by the grace of God and through the power of God, we are enabled to triumph and to overcome. And so we are to persevere in this way as well. And then the final thing, and it's just simply a way of summing up in verses 5 and 6 here. Uh, this is not only a ministry that uh, is characterized by courage and constancy, and by clarity and openness, and by conflict and triumph. It's a ministry that is characterized by Christ-centeredness. And I think that sums up verses 5 and 6 for us. See, having spoken of the light of the glorious gospel of Christ in verse 4, Paul cannot but enlarge in this as far as those who believe are concerned. And that's what his ministry is for. It's to exalt Jesus, to magnify him, to persevere in setting him forth before men in all the splendor of his glory. The glory of his person and work. False teachers may preach up their own, their own importance, like the Atrophies, who, whose aim was to have preeminence. That is, to have people admire them and to attract people to themselves rather than to Christ, so that they might lord it over them. Paul had no time for that. His passion and his purpose was to present Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He is the one to whom men must bow. He is the God-man. He's the one who is the eternal Son of God and yet the one who came into our scene to take our place, to conquer sin and death and hell and to deliver us out of darkness and death into his kingdom. He's the only Savior and Lord for men, and to whom we must yield our allegiance, and whom we must serve and worship in spirit and in truth. You see, that's where the heart of Paul's message lies. It focuses solely on Jesus. That's the Christ that Paul proclaims. And it's emphasized there in verse 5. And then verse 6, Paul explains the reason why he proclaims such a Christ. It's because the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness had shone in his heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. See, God is making himself known in Christ. Jesus himself told us that. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And again, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son who is at the Father's right hand, has made him known. John 1. And again, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. See, the only way we can know and be reconciled with God is in Jesus Christ. To know Christ 
is to know God. And when this knowledge shines into our hearts and minds, it's like a new creation taking place. Indeed, Paul goes on in the next chapter to tell us that it is a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. See, just as God brooded by his spirit over the first creation, bringing order out of chaos and saying, let there be light, and there was light. So by the same spirit, he broods over the hearts and lives of sinners like you and I, lost in the chaos and darkness of our sin. And he works this work of new creation, introducing us to the knowledge of himself as our saviour. My Savior, your Savior, and your Lord, and your God. It's no wonder Paul was willing to endure so much and persevered to make such a person known in all the light of his glory. And dear friends, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. This is the purpose and goal of gospel ministry. And that's why we continue to engage it. Because we too have come to know something about it. In our own lives. And we know the transformation. That it has wrought in our lives. Over the years. And that's why we persevere in. Presenting Christ. And Christ alone. To men and women today. To know God in Christ is to see something of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of true religion. This is life eternal, said Jesus, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That was how Jesus summed it all up in his prayer to the Father, just before going out to endure the cross. See, to reject Christ and to deny him, is to deny God himself. And to deny God is to deny your soul both life and peace and salvation itself. And to deny God is to be denied and disowned by him at the last day. The question this leaves us with this evening is, has the truth of Christ ever been brought to your heart and mind with such conviction and power, causing you to bow before him as your God, your Lord, your Savior? And is your ministry for Christ, whatever it may be, characterized by something of this courage and constancy, this clarity and openness, this conflict and trial? And above all, this Christ-centeredness that Paul and his fellow workers showed. I think today we need more of this persevering spirit that Paul emphasizes in each of these verses. It would transform our witness for Christ. It would transform our prayer life, our worship, our attitude to the word. And above all, our calling to exalt the glory of God that's revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And one final question for any unbelievers among us. 
has the light of that knowledge shone into your heart to dispel the darkness that reigned there, bringing with it life and peace. If not, we urge you to come to this Savior now. Receive him in all his saving power and bow to him as your Lord and your God and begin to follow him with that same persevering spirit and to serve him to the end of your days. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, once more we give thanks to you for the privilege of being together in this way, for the privilege of once again looking into the scriptures that you have revealed, and above all, that glorious light and liberty and power that you have made known in the good news that you have given us to proclaim concerning your Son. And Father, we ask that you will seal to all our hearts something of this word that will lead us to that same transformation of life that the apostle experienced and that we too will rejoice in exalting him in making him known and oh God that you will be pleased to use us and what little service we can render for that same glory, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.